Morning, everybody. All right. So we're going to be walking into one of our uh, another one of our topics that you guys have picked for this year. Uh, as we're going through the year, I got asked the question: um, What does the Bible say about personal responsibility? And uh, I knew that was going to come up at some point in time because of the way things have been going in our in our country for the last couple of years. And it's an interesting topic because it it lends so much to our everyday life, but it's also a very complicated topic. When I talk to people sometimes about how things, you know, what is what are we supposed to do as a personal responsibility, you know? And most people go right to the same passage: if you don't work, you don't eat. You know, uh, but it's actually not that. It's actually more complicated than that, isn't it? Personal responsibility has to be personal, um, but we have to know what God wants us to do because we don't just live alone, do we? We have personal responsibility, but we don't live. We don't. We don't live alone. So I titled today's message: "Walk Together, Stand Alone." Because our personal responsibility has two parts to it. It's not just singular. We have a responsibility to our, to uh, ourselves before the Lord. And we have a responsibility to the community before the Lord. So both of those responsibilities are before the Lord, but there's two distinct sides to it. And so today we live in this society that is increasingly becoming more collectivist, isn't it? The, so our, our whole mindset in this, in our country and around the world is becoming more of a collective mindset. You've got to be one with, you know, with the universe, man. And, uh, you know, you should, everyone should just get along. Um, but it's actually kind of frightening because what's actually being peddled is this basic idea that your life is not your own. That you belong to the, that you belong to the community. Uh, your choices are not your own. Your choices belong to the community. And probably even more frightening, and this actually came from someone in the Department of Education, your kids are not your own. Do you remember that news, uh, that news coverage? Uh, I can't remember who the person was, but they were saying, your kids do not belong to you, they belong to everyone. Uh, okay, so is everyone gonna pay that bill? I mean, <laughs> how's this, how's this gonna work, you know? Um, it's a frightening thing to hear governments say that, but this is what governments are saying. The idea is that your life exists to serve the collective good. I want to take a little side note because later in the year, I'm going to be covering a topic that I cover every couple of years, and I keep getting asked this question, why is this such a big deal? Why is this such a big deal? And the the, the topic is creation evolution. In the church, this can be a, a big deal for some people, and it can be such a side issue for other people. For me, it is the most important argument in the church. The most important argument in the church. And the reason is, if you move to an evolutionary mindset, this makes perfect sense. Doesn't it? Collectivism makes sense. You are not your own. You do belong to the community. But in biblical creation, you're unique. You're individual. You're not a random accident. You don't belong to each other. You belong to God. So all of a sudden things become very individual. And our society is moving this uh, this way because if you think about this in an evolutionary mindset, you only have value if you add value to the community. You are only worth what you provide in an evolutionary mindset. If you don't provide, if you are nothing more than what the Nazis used to call a useless eater, then things can get bad real fast. But to God, there is no useless person. There is no meaningless person. We're all incredibly important, and he died for all of us. 
Now, the idea of collectivism is not new. It's been around for thousands of years. Um, and if you actually just think about it on the surface, it does make sense. We should be making decisions that are good for the, for the, uh, for the group. You shouldn't just be making decisions that are good for you and they screw everybody else over. That's kind of bad. But as good as it might sound, you have to ask the question, the basic question, who gets to decide what's good, what's in the best interest of the common good? See, when people say your life needs to be in the best interest of everyone, who gets to decide what is in the best interest of everyone? See, that's the question. For a Christian, it comes back to one source, Scripture. Scripture is what's best for everyone. The standards of God are what's best for everyone. The, 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 the mind of Christ and the heart of God is what's better for everyone. But unfortunately, we don't live in a world that uh, uh, really wants to embrace that, do we? They want to fight it to the nail. So nationally, one of the things that we get left with is what's called the consensus of power. Now, you may not totally understand that statement, but this is, the, this is what we live, uh, live under. And it basically looks like this. Our political system has one group that ends up in power at some point in time. And that group in power gets to decide what's best for everyone. And then they press everyone underneath them is the way they see it to submit to what they believe is best for everyone. And it comes in terms of laws and taxes and things like that. Somehow they make you conform until the party that's in control changes. And then a new set of standards come in because that never happens, right? And then what happens? And then you're pressed to follow those standards because that's what's best for everyone. It's kind of interesting that what was best for everyone two years ago is not best. what's best for everyone today. And a lot of times those things are diametrically opposed. It makes you understand how our founding fathers, why they framed our original documents the way they did to keep the government out of our lives. Because when government gets in our lives, this is what happens. It's unfortunate, but there it is. The truth is, no matter how noble the beginnings are in a democratic society, you end up with mob rule. You just do. Because in the beginning, you have two sides that might not agree, but then you talk about it, and you decide you still don't agree. And then you talk about it some more, and not only do you not agree, they're so wrong, they have to be dealt with. And now, instead of two opposing views coming together and finding a compromise, you have two opposing views working their hardest to destroy the other one, usually at the cost of the collective, which is exactly what we're seeing today. Now, for Christians... This goes back and forth between real problem and not a problem at all, <laughs> depending on who's in power. If the right person's in power, Christians don't, it doesn't make any difference because it doesn't bother us. You're actually allowed to live your life with some degree of freedom. You're allowed to express your love for God and, and do things according to the Bible, and it's not that big a deal. The wrong person gets in power, and all of a sudden your faith is not only bad, it's borderline terrorism. kind of crazy right how that can that can switch so fast but it does we can go from just living our life normally to ending up in court for a hate crime because you refuse to make a wedding cake or take a picture for someone who has a lifestyle completely opposed to everything you believe in how it was okay one day and criminally offensive the next 
And what this has done in the church, it has caused a lot of the church to move away from personal responsibility before the Lord to community responsibility before the world. This is disturbing in a lot of ways because what ends up happening is you got a lot of the teachings of the Bible that have stood for centuries, stood for centuries. The church fathers have never disagreed on what these teachings are. Now, all of a sudden, these teachings are so offensive that they've got to be thrown out. We've got to get rid of them. And in some cases, you'd be surprised how far back they go. Show you a little video clip of uh, uh, Andy Stanley. He's a mega church pastor down in Augusta, um, or Atlanta, Georgia, where he's actually teaching his congregation not to worry about following the Ten Commandments because they don't apply to you anymore. Okay? Now, I try not to quote these things without showing a video clip because I want you to hear it from his words. Now, in this particular video clip, there's a little bit of a break in there. I apologize. Uh, it's just the way it was recorded, and there's a little... You'll see this little little uh, public use thing at the beginning. I have to put that up there because if I don't, the church can come back and sue me for using their material. Um, so we have to throw this up here. So you'll understand what this is in a second. There you go. Now, to make this point, because this is so important, I originally in my notes, I was going to put a screen up here that said, in other words, that means thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. But I knew someone would take a picture of that. And it would define me for the rest of my life. So I'm not going to put it up there. But I want you to hear me say it. Here's what the Jerusalem Council was saying to the Gentiles. You are not accountable to the Ten Commandments. You're not accountable to the Jewish law. We're done with that. God has done something new. Besides, he would say to them and he would say to you, Thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments because those aren't your commandments. Yours are better. What? Now, to make this point, so, this is let, me, so let me get this straight. Let me get this straight. I, I can murder. <laughs> I can steal. I can commit adultery. I don't have to honor my mother and father. Let's see. I can have idols in my house now. This is getting cool. The stuff I can get away with now is pretty crazy. Now he goes on in a number of different places. You're, I'm, I'm not legally allowed to show uh, a lot of uh, a lot of a single person's clips because of the way things have been happening online. So I got I got to limit it just to small pieces. That's why I just chose that clip. But he goes on to say that the reason that the New Testament apostles, Jesus's apostles, taught, he's claiming that this is what they were teaching, was because getting people to follow the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments was making it too hard for people to get saved. So they decided to disconnect themselves from the Old Testament teaching and only focus on the New Testament. Now, obviously, he's been challenged on this quite a bit, and he has, he has not backed down. But the question comes up really simply, how do you get any New Testament truth without the Old Testament? You can't. There are no New Testament truths without an Old Testament backing. See, without the Old Testament, you don't even know why Jesus came. Without the Old Testament, you don't even know what sin is. Without the Old Testament, you don't know what redemption is. And without the Old Testament, you don't know what Jesus did on the cross. But you see, from a societal standpoint, this sounds really good. 
Because now you can do things like what he is doing at his church, allowing openly homosexual people to serve in the church, even in the kids program. You allow, uh, you allow yourself to be able to hire secular musicians, which is what he does for his worship team so that they can play good music because he doesn't want those Christians who aren't that very, aren't really talented to be on the worship team because the music won't be enough, have a high enough caliber, which is why a couple of months ago his worship team started playing Ozzy Osbourne. To try to prove a point. The point was made pretty clear. That this guy has no concept of what it means to follow Christ. But I want you to think about something. Imagine if you knew, because the church knows this. If you knew you were sending your kids back to learn about the sexual standards of God from someone who refuses to live by them. And you're worshiping the Lord, lifting your hands in song, listening to musicians who were playing in a bar the night before. Is this holy? No, but it is very acceptable to modern collective thinking. Because, see, we got to be accepting. 2 Timothy 3, 4 and 3 says, For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. Now, he's not alone in his complete dismissal of the authority of Scripture. It's happening all over the church today, just as Scripture said it would. And it's actually given rise to a completely new version of Christianity. You've seen me, you've heard me teach about it a a few months ago, progressive Christianity. This is an offshoot that literally allows anything because love wins. God is love. God is also righteous. God is also good. God also has standards and God is going to judge us. But we don't want to talk about that. We just want to talk about love. Remember when I talked to you, I think it was last week, I talked about vampire Christianity. You want all the, you want the benefit of the blood, but none of the responsibility. <laughs> it's not the way it works. Now, as disturbing as this might be, and as clearly unbiblical as it is, there's a more significant, see, there's a more significant issue than the fact that this is being taught. The fact that this is being taught shouldn't surprise anybody. God told us that this was going to happen. So when it starts to happen, we shouldn't be like, oh my gosh, we're falling apart. No, we're not. Prophecy is simply being fulfilled. But in light of that, we need to understand what our part is in this. See, the more disturbing, the thing that's more disturbing to me that this is happening is that the Christians keep going back to these churches. That to me is the more disturbing part. Because what that tells me is the people attending these groups have no independent faith of their own. Because if you actually read your Bible, if you actually studied scripture, if you actually connected with God on your own, you would know that this is not the way it's supposed to go. But what happens is we end up attaching ourselves to the community that we're part of. I hope no one ever does that here. I'm not cool enough. I'm pretty cool. I'm not that cool. The reality is I cannot save you. The denomination, our church cannot save you. A denomination cannot save you. The community of saints cannot save you. Your parents and their faith cannot save you. Only Christ can save you. It's only the rebirth of the spirit within that can save you. It is salvation of the one. You see, we walk as a community of faith, but we stand before God alone. 
And we have to remember that. So when you're going to a place that you know is teaching absolute fallacy, and you go, not only do you go back, you give them your money so that they can be, they, so you're, we're funding this nonsense. And some people even know it's wrong and they keep going back. Hoping that they can change things from the inside. The problem is you're not the leader. You get the, it's the leader that's got to be changed or removed. It's one of the two. It's unfortunate, but it's the way that it works. You don't get to heaven by being Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, or non-denominational. So how do we walk out this individual faith in a collective world? What is it that God expects us in the community? So let me, re- let me read you a few scriptures that you might, uh, you might find interesting. Ecclesiastes 4, 9-12 says, Two people are better than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but who, uh, but two, excuse me, can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. How about this one? Let us think of ways to motivate one another and acts of love and good works. Let us not neglect meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. How about this one? How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no division in the church, rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. It almost sounds like collectivism, doesn't it? But it isn't. I'll show you in a minute. John 13, 34 and 35. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. Uh, 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 You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Now, I'm sure you can think of more examples of God encouraging us to live and walk together. And being united in fellowship, being united in purpose is a good thing. It's something we should all want. But let me ask you this. Does walking in unity mean walking in a collective mind? All identical. We say the same things. We dress the same way. We do the same stuff. See, a collective is what's referred to as forced unity, okay? Forced unity. All the views that, you, that you're allowed to have have been approved and are regulated in a, in a collective. They're regulated by those in power, and you are pressed into compliance. Now, in the church, probably the best example of this, honestly, is the Catholic Church. I'm not being mean. I'm not putting anyone down, but they are a really good example of what is referred to as forced unity. Your entire faith is mapped out for you. Any of you who have Catholic backgrounds, you know this. Everything you could possibly do in relationship to your faith has been spelled out, approved, and regulated. There's nothing that you do that, is, that has been outside of someone's design. And everyone falls in line. Well, I can't do that. I'm Catholic. What, what does that even mean? I don't, I've heard this so many times. Why can't you do that? Well, I'm Catholic. Well, why can't you do that? I don't know. Okay, let me get this straight. You can't do that because you're Catholic, but you don't know why you can't do this because you're Catholic. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's good. Yeah, okay. Sounds right. In the secular world, it looks like things, it might look like things like universal education standards. 
All kids will achieve this level in order to move on. Uh, Teaching things like CRT. That's collective mindset. How about this? Exposing children as early as kindergarten to a curriculum designed to bring them in line, which is their words, not mine, with the approved collective views as early as possible. Get their thinking in line with the collective before they commit the sin of individual thought or, God forbid, critical thinking. Last thing you want is a bunch of kids with critical thinking skills. Then they may question the powers to be. In a collective, those who stray from the approved standards have to be, um, the term that is actually being used today by our own government is educated. Um, you notice they don't say re-educated, they just say educated. Until they submit to the approved collective uh, views, uh, but this is for their own good. Uh, and I just got to say, I'm really glad that we don't live in a nation where collective mindset is being pressed on the, on society itself. I'm glad we don't live in a nation where those who stray from the party line or the approved view on something, they're not pressured or canceled or marginalized until they submit to the collective good, which we all know is actually happening and it's going to get worse. It, it, it just is. But you see, God is not looking for or even hinting at collective faith. Okay, God's not not looking for collective faith. In fact, it's your uniqueness that God is after. It's what makes you you. That's what God wants. God wants all of the all of the coolness, all of the skill, all the capability, all the arrogance, all the all the crazy, all the dumb, all the stuff that no one wants to talk about. God wants all of it. Because he's not after a picture-perfect individual. He's after you. He's after who you are. All of it. The good, the bad, the ugly. Okay? Our unity as believers is, is centered around one goal. Our unity as believers is centered around leading people to the saving power of the gospel message. When it comes to unified purpose, unified fellowship, That's where it all culminates, right there. Leading people to salvation through Christ. That's it. That's the place where we all meet in the middle. The difference is we don't all get there the same way. Did everyone get saved the same way I did? No. We all meet Jesus in different ways. You imagine if we all had to meet Jesus the same way? In the same place? Saying the same prayer? Living the same life? <laughs> this would be really boring. You think about this, there's not, there's, not on, there's not one single way to witness, there's not one single way to preach or pray. Our service to the gospel is as individual as each of us are. The reality is, I'm not called to do your part, you're not called to do my part. Many gifts, one spirit, right? Many parts, one body. God wants all of it. He wants all of it. Scripture tells us in a simple way that we all play different parts in the same play, and God's the director. We all have different pieces 
to this puzzle. And our unity is not found in being carbon copies of each other. Our unity is found in the individual. You think about this. Our, to be unified, to truly be unified as a church, we need to be a collection of individuals with free will who make an individual choice to be part of a community. In order for us to walk in unity, we have to make that choice to walk in unity. And making that choice might be as simple as, I don't agree with how you want to do this, but I'm going to walk with you to help you. You see, that's unity. That's not conformity. I don't want you to walk with me unless you believe exactly the way I do. Come on. Come on. There are some way, there are some areas in which you have to step aside. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no doubt in that. But the reality is we walk forward in unity even when we are not necessarily of the same mind. It's okay to have a different view. It's okay to have a different perspective, but that doesn't mean we stop walking forward. It means we keep walking forward with everyone's wild differences at the same time. Because the truth of the matter is, they may be right, you may be wrong, and you might learn something, or you might be right, they might be wrong, and they may learn something. But you'll never learn from anyone who you're not connected with. Just by separating for no good reason, we don't become closer to Christ in that process. Our personal responsibilities as individual believers in a church of individuals is to do our part, whatever that part may be. So here's another aspect of being an individual in a community. So when we come together as a church, when we come together as a group, and we start moving forward in the unity of purpose, you may not end up doing something that you think you should be doing. You may not be serving in an area where your skill set is really unif- really put out there. You may be serving below your skill set. You may be serving below where you think God is calling you. Serve anyway. Because God may have you right where you are supposed to be. And the truth of the matter is, sometimes we don't think we're supposed to, we, we are where we're supposed to be because most of the time our thoughts are not God's thoughts. We think God's will is our will. You know, I knew about two weeks after I got saved that God called me to be a preacher and I ran from that like crazy. Because I arrogantly thought in my own mind that that meant I was supposed to start preaching now. No. See, God showed me where I was going to go, but what he didn't show me was the path to get there. God may show you step 1,856, but you've still got to get there. And what I found along the way was, if I was unwilling to serve at 100%, wherever I was, whatever I was doing, then I was not going to be the right person for what God wanted me to be doing in the end. You see, I put my individuality ahead of the community. The community was supposed to bow to my calling, my individuality, because I'm a Christian serving God. I had it backwards. I am an individual before righteous God, but I'm also an individual before God in the community of faith. 
And I don't get to dictate my position in the community of faith. God does. And if he wants me to be here, 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 and then suddenly here, that's his choice. All I know is I need to do the best I can right here with whatever I'm doing. I've said this before. When I, before I even started on a worship team way back at Faith Fellowship, long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Sorry. My first connection to the worship team was cleaning cables after the service was over. The service would get over, the cables would be a mess, and I knew that uh, Tim Grant, the worst leader at the time, that kind of bugged him because he'd have to clean it up. So I would go up to the stage after the service was over, and I'd wind up the cables, and I'd put them on the, put them on the stairs, and I'd just clean the stage up. No one asked me to do it. It was just something I knew it was something that needed to be done, and so I did it. I did that for months and months and months. I think Tim was just trying to figure out if I would ever stop doing it. I remember when I was talking to him once, he said, you know, one of the thir- first things that I, re- I recognized about you was that it was, you weren't looking to be noticed. You were ju- you'd be willing to do the stuff that no one would ever see. Are we willing to serve God in places where no one will ever see us? Where we serve people who will go farther and we become quickly forgotten. That's a powerful question. Are you willing to serve God with all of your life, with all of your might, with all of your skills, with all of your talent, with all of your resources, knowing you'll never be remembered? See, it's the people who say yes to that that do get remembered. It's the people who say no to that that are never remembered. Because God never promotes him because he can't. He can't because you become the center of attention. And it's not about that. God usually promotes the people who are scared to death because he knows they'll lean on him. <laughs> the people who fight it tooth and nail. Although I don't, God, I, God, there are so many people more qualified. I know there are people more qualified and they're very well aware of it. And they're just waiting for everyone else to figure it out too. I want the person who's going to come to me. And promote me and his gospel. If you find yourself in a situation where you're not sure why you are where you are, why you haven't arrived yet, ask yourself this question. Are you doing your best where you are? Are you doing your best where you are? Listen to this section in Colossians 3.23. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything that you do. Try to please them all the time, uh, uh, not just when they're watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather for people, rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and the master you are serving is Christ. But if you do what is wrong, you will be paid back for the wrong you have done for God has no favorites. Now, most of the time, we simply just quote verse 33, uh, 23. That's when people are quoting this passage, that's typically what they quote. I wanted to put the whole thing in there because I wanted you to see the people being talked to are people who don't want to be where they are. The people who believe they're unfairly in the position that they find themselves in. I shouldn't be in this position. I shouldn't be a slave. I should be free. You're right, but you are. So do the best you can. I'm serving in this place and I should be, I should be at a higher level. I should be running something. Fine. Maybe you should, but maybe you're not because your character has not developed to the point where God can trust you with that. You may not be where you're supposed to be, but are you doing the best you can where God has you? No matter what it is, 
It doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter how small it is. Our individual responsibility to the group is to do the best we can with what's in front of us. And it's not only our individual responsibility before God in the community, it's our individual responsibility before God as a single person. Because God says, if I can't trust you with the insignificant things, then there's no way I can trust you with the big things. Isn't that the truth? He who is faithful in the small things, be faithful in the big things. See, our individual responsibility has to go both ways. If all you do in your life is serve God and your life never becomes what the world would call success, is that enough for you? Or does God owe you a certain type of life? I've, act, I've heard this from people. I will serve God anywhere as long as I always have what I need and I'm comfortable. I have a house. I have food. I have clothes. <laughs> I thought you said you serve God anywhere. Anywhere nice. I've tried to tell God a, a bunch of times that I'm sure there are people in Tampa that need Jesus. Yes, Father, I will go. <laughs> I will go to the land of golf courses open 12 months a year. I'm willing to, to do. Well, I am willing to do that. But, but still, you know. <laughs> God says, no. Oh, you're going to live as in a place where the air hurts your face. <laughs> and the snow is usually deeper than you are tall. Thanks, Lord. See, when we have this attitude, this is the essence of denying ourselves. This is the essence of denying ourselves in favor of the will of God. Check out these scriptures. For we are each responsible for our own conduct. How about this one? 2 Corinthians 5, 10, and 11. For we, all, for we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others. God knows we're sincere, and I hope you know this too. Exactly. How about this? Luke ten twenty seven. The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, in your mind and your uh, uh, and love your neighbor as yourself. You must, not they must. You must. You see how individual that that passage is. You. How about this one? Romans fourteen twelve. Yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. And here's the one that's everyone's favorite. Second Thessalonians three. For you know that you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. We never accepted food from anyone without paying for it. We worked hard day and night so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We certainly had the right to to, uh, to ask you to feed us, but we wanted to give you an example to follow. Even while we were with you, we gave you this command. Those unwilling to work do uh, will not get to eat. Yet we hear that some of you are living, listen to this, living idle lives, refusing to work and meddling in other people's business. This last passage is pretty amazing and it's very offensive to a lot of people today. 
We command such uh, such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and work to earn their own living. Samantha and I were talking about this the other day. You go around the country that every business is screaming for employees, but our national government is saying unemployment is only 4%. <laughs> yeah, sure. That sounds great. Until you figure out how they calculate it. If you actually go back to the way they calculated the unemployment rate in the 80s, our unemployment rate is over 20%. Over 20%. They're not counting people who have just given up. They don't care. It's over 20%, folks. We've got a nation that has grown very comfortable taking whatever they're given. We've become idle. And that has turned itself over into the church. Now, there are, there are legitimate reasons why some people can't, can't work. You're injured. I get it. Okay. I get it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who are very able-bodied, very capable, but lazy. Where they've convinced themselves that they can't succeed. I've known people throughout my life that have, that have been told by government officials, you can't work. You're, you are 100% disabled because you're dumb. I'm not kidding. I'm not making that up. You're too mentally incapable to hold down a job. Now I happen to, I, I remember this person. They could run a computer. They could do web searches. They could do a whole lot of things. But they decided that was a valid excuse for me to not have to do anything but live my own life however I wanted. This is a problem. Because I've been asked by people like this, is it okay that I don't work? I mean, I could probably find a job, but I would probably not make the same money I'm getting now. Is this wrong? Yes. It's wrong. I don't know why our country's in such a financial situation. I do, and you're part of it. Well, that was rude. Yep. Get up, go to work. This says we command such people to figure out how to take care of yourself because if you won't take care of yourself, you'll never be able to take care of anybody else. That's just the way life goes. Our individual responsibility before God is to become the most capable, useless, uh, useful, useless, <laughs> useless person. Yay, well on my way. In a minute, I'll fall off the stage and hurt my back. <laughs> Actually, if I fell off the stage, I probably would kill myself. We are supposed to be as useful as we can. We are supposed to be as capable. We're supposed to be developing ourselves so that we are useful to not only God, but to society and the church. That's our individual responsibility before God as individuals. It doesn't matter if other people care what you're doing. It, what matters is that you are doing your best for yourself before God. Because when you do that, God can turn you into your best for the community. So when people say, what does God's word say about personal responsibility? It says, you are bound and commanded to be the best version of you that you can be. And then you are also bound and commanded to put that person to work for the gospel and the community of faith. 
That's what personal responsibility is before God. As individuals, to be the best we can be. And before the community, to be as helpful as we can possibly be. That's what we're supposed to do. If you can't do one thing, do something else. If you're waiting for the right position to open, just do something. Get started. I push this all the time. Go ask Christy what you can do out back with the kids, the next generation of faith in this country. What can you do within the church? What are the different things we could be doing? How can we help you reach people in the community? Do something other than just show up and punch the Sunday morning clock. Because that's idle faith, and that's dangerous. God does not want you like that. He wants you active. He wants you to be serving him powerfully. I know she's just like, all right, I'll come preach. (laughs) You are more than who you think you are at the moment. And there's so much more for you down the road. But you have to get started. Amen.